Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. This truth transfers to people right down to this very day. God speaks, He convicts, He calls, but if we continue to resist that, if we continue to turn a deaf ear, if we continue to harden our hearts, that becomes more faint and more faint and more faint till we get to a point where we can't hear anything. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian concludes his teaching on Isaiah chapters 3 through 6. Now, here's Pastor Brian. And so the remainder of the chapter is, again, talking about the judgment that's going to come because of that. Now, so the sixth chapter is is a key point here in the book of Isaiah. And so Isaiah says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated high and on his throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, the question that Bible commentators have is, so has Isaiah prophesied these first five chapters and then this event happens? Or is it that he's just going to go back and describe the event that brought him into the prophetic ministry, even though it chronologically it's not in the order. It happened before the prophetic ministry. Nobody really knows the answer to the question, and it's not all that important anyway. The point is, Isaiah is telling us about his call into ministry and what took place. So it was in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, as I said, Uzziah was probably the greatest king as far as bringing the nation into a place of prosperity. His reign was the longest reign next to the reign of Manasseh. Now, Manasseh was the most wicked king of Judah, but Manasseh's reign was interrupted because he was carted off and put in chains in Assyria, and there he repented and came back and you know, still lived out part of his reign. So Uzziah came to the throne at 16 years old, and he reigned till he was 68, 52 years. And his reign was extremely prosperous. And it even says in Chronicles about him, and maybe you remember this, and this is a, a verse that always has stuck in my mind, that Uzziah was the one who was greatly helped by the Lord until he became strong. Until he became strong. He sought the Lord. The Lord blessed him. The Lord prospered him. Then in his strength, he rebelled against the Lord. And Uzziah was the one who attempted to go Maybe you remember the story. He attempted to go into the temple and offer a sacrifice as a priest. And that was strictly forbidden. 
and the priests themselves had to resist him and push him back. And remember, God struck him with leprosy because of that transgression. So this is, this is the guy, Uzziah. So his reign, this 52-year reign, has brought incredible peace and prosperity to Israel. Uzziah, probably next to Solomon, Uzziah was the greatest king as far as just advancing the, the kingdom itself. So Solomon had that great, great reign until he stumbled. But then Uzziah comes along many years later, but he now has a, a, like a similar kind of a reign to Solomon in the sense of its prosperity and expansion and all of these things. So he's well known all throughout the nations. He's this great king. But it's significant. In the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. And it's almost as though there's a hint here that while Uzziah lived, he was eclipsing the Lord. People couldn't see the Lord. They didn't really need to look at the Lord. Why look beyond Uzziah? Because they had everything they needed. And it wasn't until he died, Isaiah says, then I saw the Lord. So it, it's like, you know, this person in his greatness and in God's blessing upon his life, the people of God enjoying the blessing of God forgot God. That happens. And that's what happened here. So in the year that Uzziah died, he said, I saw the Lord. On a high and lofty throne, the hem or the train of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. Now, in Ezekiel and in Revelation, we have a similar picture, but a different creature is described. Here, we're being told about the seraphim. In Ezekiel and in Revelation, we're told about the cherubim, and they are not the same. Now, in Revelation, they're, they're referred to as these, these living creatures that surround the throne of God. A seraphim, the word means basically burning ones. And also, evidently, it's some sort of a serpent type of a shape. And it's a heavenly being of some sort. But I like what Ray Ortland said. His definition was they are living flames of pure nuclear-powered praise. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> living flames of pure nuclear-powered praise. And so these seraphim, they are there, it says, and they have these six wings and they cover their faces, their feet, and with the other two, they fly. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. So Isaiah sees the Lord sitting upon his throne and, and these seraphim, and they cry, holy, holy, holy. The holiness of God is something that, of course, we talk about, that the Bible 
obviously speaks of this on many occasions, but sometimes we don't really know exactly what we're even talking about. And the word holy, its purest meaning is separate. And so the idea, when the Bible talks about God being holy, it does mean pure. That's included in it. But it means more than that. Because sometimes we almost think of God as just a bigger, nicer, better version of people. (laughs) But that's not it. When it says that God is holy, it means that he's in a category all by himself. He's separate from everything. There is nothing that compares to him. There is nothing that's in a category like him where you could say, well, you know, yeah, they're they're kind of like, they're kind of alike. You can't do that. Now, of course, God's created human beings in his image and his likeness, but we're still a far cry from being God. So when the these seraphim are crying, holy, 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 they're expressing this, this transcendence, this categorical distinction of who God is. And I think it's relevant to note that whenever there's a reference to the Lord and this formula is used, it's always holy, holy, holy. Now, some people say, well, it's just, it's just like a triad. It doesn't necessarily, it just is, it's a way to emphasize, which I think it's probably that, But I also think that it is, I don't think it could be four holies or two holies because I think that it is related to the triunity of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And so holy, holy, holy is the Lord. His glory fills the whole earth. And so as this happened, the foundation doors of the temple were were shaken at the sound of their voices and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe is me. So remember those six woes. Woe to those who joined house to house. Woe to those who wake up early to drink. Woe to those who did this, this, and that. And now Isaiah sees the Lord and Isaiah says, woe is me. Why? Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. See, this is the natural response of a sinful person to the presence of God. There's no place... Now, of course, we hear people say things about, you know, when I meet God, I'm going to tell him this or give him a piece of my mind or, you know, we hear people say that. When we find in scripture, this is the only place we find it, we find in scripture people who are encountering God. And generally speaking, we're talking about people who are the people of God, like say Daniel, for example, or John in the book of Revelation or Isaiah here, the response is always the same. Woe is me. Now, Isaiah verbalizes it, 
But Daniel and John had similar types of reactions. I fell down at his feet as though dead. Um, I was sick for three full weeks after my encounter with God. Daniel says that. Peter, when he recognizes Jesus for who he is, a, a, a quick glimpse of the deity of Jesus, he says, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful person. And you see, that is true for anyone who has a a real encounter with God. We automatically know we're sinners. And not even in a, not even in a bad way, like, like not, not in a despairing way, just in a real way. So, you know, a person who has no consciousness of being a sinner is a person who has had no encounter with God. Because if you have any encounter with God, the first thing you're going to know is, woe is me. I'm undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. We, we just will intuitively know our, our own sinfulness. And again, not in a, in a condemning way or in a despairing way, but just in this is reality. I remember a friend of mine telling me the story of um, when he, how the Lord grabbed hold of his life and he came from a Muslim background and he had this vision and Cheryl knows the story better than I do, but um, I'm going to try to tell it. She'll correct me later, but... um, But the gist of it, I'll just get to the point of it. The point of it was, so so like it had a vision and then it was something to do with the tomb and, and then, but sensing the presence of the Lord. And he said, but as he sensed the presence of the Lord, he sensed his own sinfulness. That was the thing that just weighed on him. But again, not in a despairing way, but just in a way that he just knew that he was unclean. And you know, that is an act of mercy on God's part to let us know that we are unclean because, of course, he has every intention of cleansing us. But if we don't think we need cleansing, then, then we got a problem. But Isaiah knows, woe is me, I'm undone. And so one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that had, he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. Now, remember, this coal is taken from what? It's taken from the altar. And the altar is the place of sacrifice. And so this isn't some sort of a cleansing that's uh, distinct from the cleansing that comes through the blood of the lamb. This is connected to that. That's how cleansing comes. Cleansing comes because of, of the shed blood of Jesus. But the altar signifies that that is... Um, it is the altar of the sacrifice there. And so um, he touched my lips. He said, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, 
Listen to this. Who should I send? Who will go for us? Who should I send? Who will go for us? There again, you have an indication of the plurality within the nature of God. God is speaking first in the singular, who shall I send, but then who will go for us? So God is looking to send someone on a mission to speak to the people. So again, Isaiah is describing his call into the prophetic memory. And so he said, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. And he replied, go. Say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. So God is saying, go, and this is what you're going to say, but they're not going to listen to you. That's what he's telling them. They're not going to listen to you. If they would listen to you, they would turn and be healed. But the sad thing is they're not going to listen. And, you know, you think of of the people of Israel. You think of the people of Judah. And this truth transfers to people right down to this very day. God speaks. He convicts. He calls. But if we continue to resist that, if we continue to turn a deaf ear, if we continue to harden our hearts, that becomes more faint and more faint and more faint till we get to a point where we can't hear anything. You know, have you ever heard somebody say, somebody who is just obviously in sin and rebellion and things like that say, you know, but I don't feel any conviction about it. So what they're thinking is, I guess God's not bothered by this. No, that's not, the, that's not what's going on. The fact that you don't feel anything is because your heart has become so hardened. That's why you don't feel anything. God hasn't changed. You know, when you hear somebody say, uh, you know, like, oh, I'm, you know, they're in a sinful relationship and they say, oh, but, you know, in this, in this relationship, I've grown so much closer to God. No, you haven't. That's a deception. Yeah, but I don't feel like it's wrong. Well, that doesn't matter. <laughs> That's why God gave us a book called the Bible. Because he knows that we would come to a place where we didn't feel like anything is wrong. You know, we can get to a place where we can just, you know, we can sin 24-7 and never even think there's any problem with it. That's why God gave us a book to say, hey, it's written right here. You shall not do this. And so the sad and tragic truth about the people is that Isaiah is going to preach to them. And, you know, think about this. I don't know if I would sign up for this if the Lord said, okay, go and preach. Nobody's ever going to listen to you. Nobody's ever going to respond. Nobody's ever going to repent, but just go do it. Oh, that would be tough. But that's pretty much what Isaiah is being told. Then I said, until when? How long is this going to go on? 
And he replied, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, houses are without people, the land is ruined and desolate, and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled. The holy seed is the stump. But what is he saying? He says, when, Lord? And the Lord says, basically, they're never going to listen to you. Actually, what's going to happen is all of these things. The city's going to lie in ruins. Uh, the houses are going to be without people. And uh, everything's going to be desolate. That is going to happen. And that, that is what happened. Because they didn't listen to Isaiah. And then Jeremiah came. And they didn't listen to Jeremiah. Boy, I read Jeremiah just recently again. And I forgot how absolutely difficult Jeremiah's ministry was. I mean, I knew, but then reading it again, it's like, my goodness, you know, they're trying to kill him all the time. They throw him in a pit of mud that's, you know, 50 feet in the earth and it's up to his neck in mud. They leave him there to starve. And, uh, you know, all, all of these things happening to Jeremiah. Think, wow. And, you know, sometimes today we marvel that people in the culture, people in the world, you know, you know, why don't they listen to what we're saying? Well, they didn't listen to Jeremiah. And those, those were the people of God. And they didn't listen to Jeremiah. And they didn't listen to Isaiah. And that's just the nature of it. And, I mean, thank God for his mercy that he poured upon us. And thank God that we're listening. And we need to keep listening. So what's going to happen in the end? The holy seed is the stump. So there's going to be a stump. That's all that's going to be left. Now, when we get to chapter 11, and that great chapter on the Messiah and the glorious kingdom of the Messiah, the stump reappears. There shall be a root that comes out of the stump of Jesse. Jesse's the father of David. And so the picture is when, and you think about this, when Jesus came, the house of David was like a stump. To the Romans, the house of David in this ancient kingdom was a laughing stock. The Romans thought, whatever that was, who, it doesn't matter. You know, we're here now, we're in charge. And yet, there's still that small handful of people that were holding out hope. And the stump, Joseph, Mary, the family members, totally insignificant, just like a stump would be. But this is going to become a branch. It's going to become a tree that fills the whole earth. Amazing. So that is the calling and the commissioning of Isaiah. And as we get into chapter 7, so next time we're going to try to go uh, chapter 7 through chapter 11 because that, that kind of takes us through a, a section. And remember, we talked about Isaiah is the prophet of the Messiah. So as we pick up in chapter 7, we're going to see clearly why he's called the prophet of the Messiah.
of July, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled, Is Jesus History? by Dr. John Dixon. Living in an age of science and empirical evidence, how can people still believe in miracles? How can someone believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead? The resurrection of Jesus is essential for the Christian faith. If Jesus never rose from the dead, then an offer for eternal life does not carry any authority. So, is there any historical evidence that can be examined to test the authenticity of such a claim? Dr. John Dixon addresses this very question and examines the ancient evidence as a trained historian. He explains the evidence simply and clearly, so you'll be able to consider the evidence for yourself. If you've ever wondered if there's any historical evidence for the existence of Jesus and His resurrection, then you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. The book is Jesus History by Dr. John Dixon. It's our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Isaiah. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.